We are starting, though, talking about what we started the show with yesterday, and that is the insinuation of meddling in the Vancouver civic election. This is Mayor Ken Sim answering questions about this. To say that any one person or group, you know, swung an election, I think it's kind of crazy. I think it's disrespectful to all the people that ran as part of ABC. I think it's disrespectful to every single person who volunteered. We had over 5,000 donors, individual donors. We had school teachers. We had nurses. Again, saying that it is insulting and also saying that it is uh, he would like to hear more about these allegations and what was contained in those CSIS documents. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Kenny Chu, a former Conservative MP. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Good afternoon. Uh, I know this is something that you have talked about and your experience at the federal level with the allegations of meddling. When you see what's being uh, alleged in this case as far as possible interference in the Vancouver civic election, what is your response to that? Well, Joe, just like uh, the ants uh, start popping up um, in the springtime here, I mean, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, their interest is not uh, political ideology or even or even particular ethnicity. Uh, their interest is power. They want to influence whoever in power, and they also want to uh, secure their control and influence in uh, Canadian policies, uh, practice, and implement it on levels of governments, federal, provincial, or municipal. So, you know, I I'm not surprised that they would have their dirty hands. Uh, involved in the in the uh, municipal election as well. When we look at the details of this case, and again, this was first reported yesterday in the Globe and Mail, and it talks about a, a campaign, really, of the former Chinese consul in Vancouver, and a campaign to 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 interfere or to to get the candidates, I suppose that that they wanted. It's different from what we've seen on a federal level with funding and what we what we're seeing as far as the allegations right now. But when we look at this. Where does the line, where is the line crossed, do you think, from campaigning for candidates that you want in an election and to interfering? Well, it's the activating uh, local organizations to provide the manpower, uh, the resources in uh, organizations, um, and also spreading uh, information and uh, campaigning. You know, uh, in federal election, we have a third-party uh, election uh, registration requirement. I think similar things happen uh, in in municipal uh, and also provincial election as well. Uh, it's okay if you want to um, involve with organizing pro or against certain party or certain candidates, but you have to make it uh, transparent and put it under the sun. And uh, the last time you know we we checked, uh, there has been no. Uh, such uh, activity and also being a, um, a foreign entity, uh, it's totally, completely um, inappropriate for, for them to get involved. So if uh, what the alleged incidents actually is proven to happen, well, then, then that's obvious foreign interference from a, from a very ugly perspective. And then if it is something that goes beyond campaigning, it goes beyond putting support and, and, and finances behind a particular candidate, then should there not be a criminal investigation? 
Well, I don't know about uh, criminal investigation because I, I'm, I'm afraid there may not be criminal law against it. However, there would be election laws that uh, certainly would have been broken, and uh, that has to be follow-up. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the Canada that we know today, uh, it, there has been no law against uh, you know, agents acting on behalf of a foreign power and uh, exerting their influence because there is no Foreign Influence Registry Act. And that's something that I and also other opposition parties have been trying to push in Ottawa. Um, sadly, uh, right now, uh, you know, just just to respond to Mayor, Mayor uh, you know, Sim's uh, uh, statement there, I think what we're just like uh, Justin Trudeau was saying, you know, nobody is saying the foreign interference is changing the overall outcome, or in this case, nobody is saying that it's it's weighed, it's changed the mayoral election. But the the problem is there has been evidence, there has been signs that tell us that uh, like a foreign uh, dictatorial authoritarian power uh, with all their might and resources have influenced our elections and that really shouldn't happen just like you know if the doctor tells me that uh, i have cancer today i want to look into it as soon as possible and not wait until that it actually you know has killed somebody or, or me for crying out loud so it, it is incumbent on the authority in this case elections bc or maybe elections canada or maybe um, the federal government to put in the um, machineries and, and put in the legislation to to warn these predatorial regimes to to uh, keep their hands off our Canadian turf. And looking at the differences, though, uh, as well, and I think one of the what stands out from the allegations on the federal level right now are that there there was some indication that perhaps the Liberals knew about it and didn't say anything, because if there was interference, that interference was to benefit them. Whereas on the civic level, and we heard this from Ken Sim yesterday, he, he talked about the fact and the direct quote it was, if I was a Caucasian male, we're not having this conversation, even though there were no names in the CSIS documents that we were told about. So we, we know that Ken Sim is Canadian-born, but he is the first person of Chinese descent to become the mayor. Uh, you mentioned that as well. How much does that play into it? Well, Joe, I think the uh, the Communist Party of you know China, they, they would definitely be more sophisticated and, and play on the nuances. Uh, it, they they basically conducted their influence in two fronts. The the first one is to definitely elect um, policymakers and politicians who who are uh, leaning toward and, and supporting. Uh, the Liberals definitely had had uh, nominated uh, such a ex politician to be our country's uh, ambassador to to China uh, way back when. Um, the the other side they wanted to show is if you if you are against me if you speak up. Uh, you know, exposing my work here in Canada. That, well, you know what? I'm going to punish you. Um, and and in this case, I think uh, Kennedy Stewart is the it's the enemy, and Ken Sim would be the enemy of the enemy. Um, it's important to not drag the race issue into this thing. I think uh, communist China it's it's not interested to helping one particular candidate or not. We know that in Australia, for example, they bribe. Uh, an Australian senator that is, you know, nothing to do with Asian uh, ancestry, and they are more than willing to pay off anybody uh, to access their, uh, you know, political influence. Uh, and in my case, 
um, because because of uh, you know my vocal um, you know proposal of protecting and asserting the Canadian rights in, in protecting ourselves. Uh, I think they they were angry and they they undermined. It seems like the uh, CISA's report has shown my election. Uh, it's definitely a contributing factor. We don't know how much of a vote uh, that would have uh, changed, but certainly uh, in this case, uh, as a Chinese Canadian, they undermined uh, my election. Uh, as opposed to in in, uh, in Kennedy Stewart case, uh, he spoke up against uh, the, the Chinese communists, and uh, as a result, he's been punished. Now, I, I don't think again that uh, the current uh, media attention it's to it's to uh, you know discriminatory or, or racist in in its nature. Uh, because what we're sh- saying is, in this case, the CCP infiltration and interference of uh, Canadians' affair. You know, it, tomorrow uh, Russia could be could be looking at the same thing and could be spreading this information among the uh, Ukrainian Canadian uh, diaspora or the Russian diaspora. And in that case, are we saying that uh, we, we're, uh, you know, we're against the Ukrainians or Russian if we are to expose what the Russians are doing here? So uh, it, it's more sophisticated and it's more complex than uh, than just pure racism all right kenny chu we'll leave it there but i appreciate your time today uh, and we'll talk to you again soon i'm sure thank you thank you joe pipe Fraser Valley bus drivers are gearing up for a walk-off. It could start on Monday. That's according to their union, leaving only essential service until a new collective agreement is reached in that area. That's Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Mission, Hope, and Agassiz Harrison. Well, Ken Popov joins us now, the mayor of Chilliwack. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Jill, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. Uh, what are residents saying or what are you hearing as far as if this strike goes ahead and it's down to essential services starting Monday? Well, quite quite frankly, it sucks, to be honest with you. For the folks that that r- rely on this kind of service for for employment, for hobbies, for sports events, et cetera, et cetera, it, it, uh, it's going to be a big, huge inconvenience. And as far as I know, I know there have been negotiations and uh, they're clearly not going very well because uh, it looks like there will be a full walk off as of Monday. When we're talking about a region that big, though, and you just mentioned some of of the groups that depend on transit, uh, that's a big area if you are somebody that doesn't have a vehicle or another way to get around. 100 uh, percent. Route 66 is a is a, you know, it's a well uh, used transport into the city uh you know after the after the pandemic you know with our ridership raised very very low it has been built up exponentially and now with this uh, on the horizon um i i can't imagine what 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 folks who rely on this kind of service are are thinking about doing like they couldn't have to cancel you know like events classes doctor's appointments, et cetera, et cetera. So it, uh, it, there's no good about this at all. I wish the parties could could get together and get this resolved. Do you think that enough has been done as far as both sides trying to find some common ground or staying at the table? Well, uh, it's, that's that's pretty tough for me to comment on that. I I would certainly hope so, uh, you know, to some, you know, to come to some sort of a, you know, a, a, you know, like a common 
goal to keep on this this strategy to keep on working, talking together, and and you know finding a resolution to this. But uh, yeah, for me to comment on that, I think I'd be out of line. Sure, no problem. Um, when we look at these negotiations, though, there there have already been two uh, rounds of job action this month. I know there was hope that they would find yeah. an agreement. Clearly, they're not there at this point. Uh, how how does that weigh on people, though, as far as being hoping that the buses will still be running and now being told that they probably won't? Yeah, that's a good question, Jill. Um, you know, thankfully, and and you know the. The uh, um, um, other service that's essential that you know it's been it's it's been mandated for them to have the other service available is still going to operate for the folks that are uh, that have the mobility issues uh, and whatnot. Just just keep that going, but it's 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 something that um, ha- has been deemed essential, and I feel like transportation corridor. And the usage should be also essential as well, but uh, that's not for me to decide, obviously. But uh, um, quite frankly, I, I I do feel for the folks that rely on this kind of service that could possibly not be there next week. So I I really hope they can get back to the table and get a deal done. And like you said, so things like handy dart will continue, yeah. and uh, those are the deemed uh, the essential service for for customers. But again, so many people that rely on transit that wouldn't qualify for handy dart and will be left to scrambling. I think in some cases. What about the fact too that it's happening? Yes, it's almost spring, but also happening when it's cold. And again, people are, are relying on this. It's not like in many cases you could hop on a bike or walk. Yeah, it's uh, like I said before. There's no, there's no good about this, you know, strategy that these, you know, sides are taking. It's going to affect so many people in so many different ways. That uh, I, like I said before, I can't imagine what what folks are doing, scrambling to to try to get from point A to point B. You know, next week if that does happen. But uh, um, I, I'm always a cup half full guy, and I'm 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 really hoping that they can come up with some some uh, uh, even playing ground here and, and, and get this deal done. All right. Uh, Ken Popov, Mayor of Chilliwack, thanks so much for joining us and uh, talking about this and looking at what could potentially happen uh, come Monday. I appreciate your time, Jill. Enjoy your day. Well, it was a frightening experience. This happened back on December 3rd on a particularly icy and snowy night. A car that was coming down Blackwood Street in White Rock ran through a stop sign, clipped another vehicle, and then crashed into the side of a building. That alerted the residents of the building who saw the vehicle. Both airbags were deployed. There was damage to both the vehicle and the building. And fortunately, though, no one was hurt. However... Since then, getting the building fixed has been a bit of a nightmare. And the residents, the strata members of that building, are now embroiled in a bit of a battle with ICBC. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Tony Giaventu, the executive director of the Condo Homeowners Association of BC. Tony, thanks so much for being with us. 
Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, this is, uh, when I first saw this, I, I found it just kind of shocking when I looked at the details. And, and part of the reason they say that they're not getting compensated and they're not able to fix the building just to get it back to the way it was is that ICBC is using quotes from 1988 uh, and using that as far as the amount that it would cost to fix. Have you heard of something or anything like this before? Well, it's a little bit confusing, actually, because one of the um, insurable perils that strata corporations are required to retain is impact by vehicle or aircraft. Um, and so when we've had aircraft um, um, uh, collide with buildings as well as vehicles, and generally the strata corporations insurer covers the damage and the remedy and the repairs to the building, and then they would in turn turn around and subrogate or claim against ICBC. So, um, you know, it's a little confusing why the Strata Corporation is actually dealing with ICBC directly. Right. because And that's what, what I had thought, too, was that Strata's, and if anyone is in a Strata, you know, you have insurance for the building in addition to you'd have your own content insurance, your own house insurance, but also for the, for the building. So, and have you seen cases then where I think probably more common vehicles, either clipping buildings or going into buildings that, that are, are pretty straightforward as far as making that claim and, and getting it fixed? They have, and, and they've done this through their own insurers on their insurance policy. And then in turn, the insurer deals with ICBC directly, and they negotiate a settlement um, for the losses or the claims associated. And it could be a variety of items that impact a building. But, you know, the fundamental principle of insurance is the Strata Corporation must maintain full replacement value insurance and for a number of, of perils, which includes impact, of course, to the buildings. Because would this be any different than, say, if there was a fire that damaged the exterior of the building or flood that damaged the exterior? It's still something that had nothing to do with the strata that damaged their building. Yeah, no, absolutely. And But, but again, it goes back to the strata corporation's policy. So, um, you know, I think the strata corporation should be having a very um, intimate discussion with their insurance broker um, and verifying that their insurance actually covered vehicle impact. Um, it, you know, we, this is not unusual. This happens occasionally. And it may be something as simple as a vehicle that um, goes out of control that's entering a building but causes significant damage that ends up being an insurable claim. Again, it falls under the Strata's insurance policy for that claim, and then the insurer goes back to ICBC. But, you know, if ICBC are using outdated um, 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 uh, scales for evaluating prices and costs, um, the Strata Corporation, I'm, I'm going to recommend strongly, um, needs to get some legal representation so that can be dealt with under, under the current values for properties. Right, because that was part of this that, that stuck out, saying that the building, uh, ICBC, uh, said that they were bringing in or they were including depreciation on the building. So the settlement was actually going to be, and, and for whatever reason, going back to 1988, saying that they will cover the cost of the repairs, that what, what that would have been. So that's not the full amount, which leaves the homeowners, it sounds like the homeowners would then be on the hook for about $6,000. 
Well, and again, it shouldn't be a depreciated amount because under the Strata Property Act, Strata Corporations must insure for full replacement value, not a depreciated value, which is today's current values of construction and replacement. So, you know, again, the Strata Corporation should not be in this position. Um, their, Their insurance should have covered this. Um, if there was a deductible associated with the insurance, they may may even be looking at some sort of recovery of the deductible. But again, I'd be going back to the Strata Corporation's insurer. Right. And I think that's where things get a little bit muddled in this as well, because I think what the the Strata president is saying and told Global News is that that is what ICBC told them. That was to put the claim through your Strata insurance. But he said they didn't want to do that because there was a $15,000 deductible and they were worried if they did that, then their insurance rates would go up or they would find themselves in a position where maybe they would have difficulty getting insurance in the future. Uh, the... A claim like this rarely has an impact um, on rates and renewals. Um, the, the, the most common types of impacts that affect rates and deductibles and costs and renewals um, is where a strata corporation has multiple water escape claims or a large fire that does a significant amount of damage. But, you know, again, the strata corporation chose not to file a claim on their own insurance. Here's a bit of a problem because that insurance was there to protect them to um, guarantee that the full replacement value of the repairs would have been supported. So, you know, they, they put themselves in an awkward position by doing this. Um, and there, there is nothing that prevents the Strata Corporation after the repairs, the damages are done um, from seeking compensation for the deductible amount. Right. So it sounds like that might be a, a better way of going about it in that at least you would then get the full amount of the repair. Absolutely. And, you know, the recommendation with insurance seminars, we have a seminar coming up next week. The first recommendation is when you have a claim or a loss, of course, the very first thing is you mitigate the loss. If it's flooding, get the water turned off. Um, Get a restoration company called. Your next phone call is immediately to your insurance broker um, to find out what the claim is, what is filed. It may actually be um, an amount that's greater than your deductible. It sounds like, you know, $15,000 sounds like. Um, it is an amount greater than the deductible. Um, and then then you will turn around and figure out, well, who are we going to recover this deductible from? And when he talked about his concern as well, one of the concerns that was was making it so they didn't want to go through the insurance company was, again, um, having issues getting insurance, not only the, the claims perhaps driving up the cost, which you, you addressed, but the issue of getting insurance. Is that still something you're hearing about? Because I know a few years ago we were talking about this. It seemed like almost weekly or monthly uh, horror stories of places not being able to get insurance. Has that gotten better? Yeah, we've had some significant improvements in the market. There's quite a bit more capacity. There have been a number of um, new insurers that have entered the market. Um, We've seen prices um, moderate and drop. We've seen deductibles drop substantially. And strata corporations, I think, have figured out that if they can get through a five-year claims-free period, um, they're going to see a significant drop in their risks, deductibles, and costs. So, you know, they... The market check that we saw three years ago, which was pretty horrific for everyone, um, has certainly leveled off. Um, and we've seen some significant improvements in the market. There, I 
think as we know of right now, there is only one strata that was not capable of getting insurance, um, but they've since managed to secure insurance. And it comes with some exclusions because they have so many risks in their building um, that they simply have not addressed. And that's the risk for, for consumers. If you have um, an aging building with plumbing um, systems that are failing um, or you have unsafe electrical systems and you've been given notice of these, um, it's going to come to the point where an insurer is going to say, we simply can't insure this property because we can't, we can't manage the risk of an inevitable claim here. All right. Uh, interesting and uh, an interesting case of this particular building in White Rock. Tony, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this. Uh, thanks a lot, Jill, and happy St. Patrick's Day. Well, unfortunately, we have covered many stories about abuse within sports, whether it's post-secondary teams, teams even higher up than that, cover-ups. So we can think back to when we were talking about Hockey Canada. That certainly isn't the only sports organization that has had those problems. But with all the talk of safe spaces in sport, is any work actually being done to create them? And how do we create them? Well, joining us to talk more about this is Professor Jennifer Wellinga, professor in the School of Communication and Culture at Royal Roads University, also a former member of Canada's Commonwealth World and Olympic gold medal rowing teams. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Uh, we, we haven't talked about this uh, a lot lately, I think, because th- there haven't been those stories such as the Hockey Canada stories uh, front and centre. But when we look at safe spaces in sport, what do you think we should be focusing on? I think we should be focusing on sport, actually, and learning from sport. I think that's why I've devoted more and more of my life to protecting sport and trying to reclaim the core principles because everything that we need to know about how to do sport well and how to do the world well, frankly, uh, resides within the principles of sport. Um, that idea of, I mean, we have this great organization, the Center for Ethics and Sport, and they have the true sport principles, and they're all right there, you know, to uh, play fair, to be inclusive, all the things we're working toward in sport um, and tr- to try to preserve within sport. They all exist within great sport, well-facilitated, well-delivered, well-coached. Uh, the idea of partnership, you know, you're in partnership with your competitors even. People often think, oh, you're trying to, to destroy them. But of course you aren't because then you won't have a game tomorrow, right, if you don't have anybody to play. So it's it's all collaborative. It's quite a beautiful thing if we just really look to it and learn from it. Why is it, do you think, though, that, that we've, we, we hear more about this now? Not that it's happening mm-hmm. more, but that we're hearing more about this. And, and I know in many cases people are shocked by what they're seeing and hearing. But why has it gone on for so long? Mm, that's a really good question, Jill. And, and I think um, you're right. It, it isn't new. I think these kinds of techniques, I don't think it's the majority of coaches, for sure. I mean, I had 30 coaches in my lifetime, and literally none of them were abusive. Um, but it isn't new. It's a technique that's pretty um, typical. I don't think they're very creative techniques. They're just basic narcissism. <laughs> but um, I think the reason we're hearing more is that people now have, like, there's an increase in power balance, I would call it, in that when people are 
in a sport, typically they perceive the coach to have all the power to be able to make the decision around whether they're on the team or whether they play or whatever. And so there's this power imbalance. But with social media, with increased voice, athletes are using their platform not only to speak out on all sorts of issues like racism and inequities, but on things like abusive environments. So that's why we're hearing about it more. The athletes are through sport, developing into these very powerful and confident young people who have um, leadership capacities and voices, and they're speaking out against it. And I think it's it's great. I think it's going to transform sport for sure. And how important is it, do you think, that we are hearing the athletes speaking out and both present and, and past athletes? Yeah, and I love the role the alumni play in all these sports, right? The ones who have seen it or experienced it, but didn't have the voice or didn't have the platform or the or even the autonomy they didn't feel perhaps to speak up. Now realizing, oh yeah, we have voice too now. So everybody's getting in there and supporting the athletes who are being, um, I don't like to use the word courageous, it's overused, because you really shouldn't have to be have courage to simply speak the truth or to challenge uh, harm and abuse. But they're getting behind these athletes because they're unique, often. Um, the ones who have the, cur- the confidence, I would say, not courage, the confidence to speak out against what they're seeing and not become a bystander or a colluder or a conformer or an obedient athlete that's just going to suck it up. Um, they need support because otherwise you feel quite, I mean, the technique of some of these coaches is to isolate, right? You feel like you're the only one who's experiencing the harm. And maybe because you've been gaslit, maybe you're dreaming it. Maybe you're not quite perceiving it correctly. And so you question your reality, which is all part of the, the technique, right? And so having supporters is crucial. People being able to mirror it back to you and say, no, that's wrong. You're right. It's it's in- incredibly abusive and you shouldn't be in that situation. And that's not how people deserve to be treated in any environment. So uh, it's great. It's great to see the uh, the athletes all linking arms and banding together. Uh, there was a story or is a story uh, that came out recently uh, in The Athletic. I'm sure people will be yeah. familiar with that uh, that publication or that that uh, The Athletic. And it, it looks at abuse in uh, post-secondary sports and it focuses on the Harvard women's ice hockey team. What are your thoughts on what was uncovered there and, and the fact that here it is in print and it is being talked about? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's great that it's being exposed, and, and uh, Katie Strang did the story originally, and she does an amazing amazing amount of work in this area, like Rick Westhead, another journalist. I think these journalists are playing a, an important role in the transformation of sport as well. I think it's actually, I'm in, you know, communication and culture and media, and, and we've seen, you know, media take a real hit over the years with with this distribution of media to the the public through social media, but now I find journalism is really regaining so much impact and power through through sport, through some of these stories and that kind of investigative journalism. So I love that. Um, Katie Stone, clearly 27 years, has been utilizing these techniques of, I call it narcissism. It's, it's about dividing people and minimizing, minimizing the harm, minimizing a person. Uh, that gives them power over rather than power with or to like they should have with their, uh, with their athletes and just as a confident coach. But people... Um, find their way into sport and enact these kinds of techniques. They're very typical. It's a pattern you see replicated. We've seen it in every story we've read about recently where uh, an athlete is exposing this kind of treatment. 
We actually have had several in the post-secondary world in Canada. Uh, Windsor went through a similar experience, uh, Lethbridge and uh, UVic with their rowing coach. So we've seen quite a spat of these kinds of cases. Um, and it's funny just reading up on it again. You know, the techniques are typical, divisive, minimization, gaslighting, these crazy, um, embarrassing, kind of humiliating, demeaning techniques that are usually targeting just a few people who are resistors or, you know, confident enough to speak out against it, but they have to be exiled. Otherwise, they're a threat. You know, it's just the same old pattern over and over again. Uh, and it's horrible and sad, and um, I'm grateful that it's being exposed because uh, these kinds of people don't belong in any kind of educational environment, frankly, and certainly not in a sport environment where they're they're really they're really being um, tasked with caring for a person's passion in sport, their bodies, their minds, and their their hearts. You know, so it's one of the most important educational roles you can play. Do you think yeah. it deters people from going into sport when they read stories like this? Um, I'm sure it, it does. I think it's there's yeah there's always a fear when you expose a story like this that it becomes a tarnish on the sport itself. But if if you know sport, you know that it's not the sport that's the problem. Um, sport is again right back circling back to my first comment. It embodies a lot of these beautiful principles that can help. The world function more effectively um, if we just take them up. But I think it, it probably scares people from entering certain sports that they believe have no accountability framework in place. And I would say most sports actually lack that. That's probably the heart of the issue is that Katie Stone hasn't been monitored. I mean, who's, who's monitoring her as a professional? Who's tracking her not just her performance outcomes and how many games they win, but what she does day-to-day on the ice and how she treats her athletes and who's evaluating her and who's managing her performance and holding her accountable to certain levels of professionalism and criteria of professionalism. That's what's missing. You know, coaches, that's, that's sport again. We hold athletes accountable to certain standards of excellence, both on and off the field, and yet somehow we drop the ball in doing that kind of work uh, for the coaches themselves or for the CEOs. We saw that with the Larry Nasser case. The CEO was incredibly um, corrupt and in collusion with. And we see it with boards, right? Who's holding them accountable? I mean, they should be accountable to the their professional associations and, and to the law. But uh, we don't really see a lot of training or accountability at any level. And we saw that issue with Hockey Canada as well. And and that certainly was something that that came out, or certainly questions about that at, at Hockey Canada, and the, and the reluctance as well when people were calling out those at the top, saying you need to resign, you need to, this isn't okay, and it was almost like an arrogance of well, how dare you mm-hmm. suggest that that I that you know better or that that I need to change anything, and it it seemed it seemed like a bit of a rare glimpse. Yeah, it was a good glimpse, wasn't it? And I I really am quite thankful, even though it was horrible. Uh, very thankful to Hockey Canada because I think it educated a lot of sport organizations and members of sport organizations. So back to, you know, people being reluctant to join a sport. Well, I'm hoping it actually equips people to look for accountability and demand accountability frameworks. And I thought Hockey Canada case was a great example of that, where, 
you know, um, Skinner just got schooled in that one uh, testimony. She tried to skate through it with, well, you know, we're going to keep the lights on and this will be horrible if we remove all these people. It's just going to destroy hockey. And she was challenged. I can't remember the name of that wonderful MP, but she just challenged Skinner um, to the to the nth degree on that and said, well, aren't you isn't the board responsible for monitoring the performance of the CEO? That's your main job. You know, that's your one employee. Have you done it? Well, 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 no. And it completely pinned her against the wall and was great. It was the turning point, I think, where finally the members then rode that momentum and rose up against um, because they have the right to. The board is acting fiduciarily on behalf of the members. So it was great to see people actually taking up their power to change and demand the resignations of the board and then the CEO. And, and, you know, that's one step is removing these people from those roles. But the, you know, people often talk about the bad apple, bad barrel thing. I think it's both. Uh, I think that it's bad apples, bad barrels, bad whoever, coopers, right, creating those barrels uh, that that are flawed. We have to rethink this idea of power in sport because that's the problem. The lack of accountability and people thinking, just as you described, arrogantly that they are completely autonomous, can make whatever decisions they want, and somehow exempt in either a position or that's often the, the kind of attitude in sport. And we've, we have a raft of research revealing these phenomena, these factors, organizational factors that contribute to this kind of a uh, problem in, in any environment, not just sport. All right. Well, it's a very interesting conversation and seeing uh, these stories still coming out and the conversations that they are sparking. We'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Oh, such a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jill. Take care. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.